Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage from the Bible, we read it, we discuss it, and we get three different perspectives from three different people. As always, today I've got join, joining me, I have Lachlan Miller, our expert. Hello. And I've got Morgan Carter, our newbie. Hello. And I'm Joshua Lee, the PK, pastor's kid. How are you all doing? Well. Hey. Doing well. That's well. We've just had we've just all had lunch together, so there's not much, too much to uh, catch up on. But Morgan, last time you were saying that you uh, brought a friend or someone new to church, and you challenged uh, our listeners and viewers to for them to bring someone new to church. I believe you brought another new person to church. Yep. So I'm sticking with my challenge of trying to bring someone new each week. People from all different walks of life, different ages. I just kind of put it out there, and mm. yeah, it's. Still going well. Still going well. Yeah. Like, all all good it. interactions, like no no negatives. Yeah, lots of people are very shocked. Um, a lot of them instantly say, oh, so you're not a cult. And, <laughs> um, good feedback. Um, and they're like, oh, they're normal people. Like, mm. yeah, and obviously a church very is very welcoming. So yeah. it's been a really good experience for them. Something I'm definitely going to keep doing and encourage people to yeah. try. It always helps when the church also is very helpful in, in that yeah. nature. You, that's, you don't want to be fighting that battle. Mm. Of like, Just stick through it because it gets better. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. So as I said last week, just and I'll say it at the end of the episode, we're nearing to the end of the book of Matthew. And so once we get to the end of Matthew, our next episode, after that episode, we're going to do a Q&A. So I'm going to I'll reiterate this at the end of the episode, but start thinking of questions that you might not have the answers to and uh, send them in because that Q&A episode that we're going to have, we're going to attempt to answer them to the best of our abilities. So let's get stuck into it. Morgan, what uh, chapters are we doing? So today we are reading from Matthew 23 to 25. Today's passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 23 to 25. Hopefully you have read these chapters in preparation. If not, please pause now and read those chapters. While in Jerusalem, Jesus warns the crowd not to follow the false teachings of the Pharisees. He then goes up and sits on the Mount of Olives where he delivers his fifth and final major sermon to his disciples, in which he gives them an overview of the events that will transpire in both the near and distant future. So after reading these three three chapters, compared to sort of the, some of the other chapters, these are long sort of uh, long chapters of just continual um, writings. It hasn't been sort of broken up into different sort of sort of chunks, and it almost feels like Jesus is going on this big long rant. <laughs> it feels Fair. like, and th- this is his la- last. Sermon? Yeah, this is actually the final public teaching we'll see from Jesus from his ministry. Mm. And so chapter 23 isn't technically part of the final sermon. We'll hit that in 24, 25. But 23 is still a big block of teaching. And so I figured it sort of belonged here in this episode of just looking at the teachings of Jesus. And what we find in 23 is what seems like a brutal attack against the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And we don't Mm. find this in any of the other Gospels. Um, We find a variation of the woes that he does in the end of 23 in Luke, but otherwise only Matthew includes this sort of direct all-out attack against the scribes and the Pharisees and all the other leaders of the Jewish people. Because he seems to, in our episode before, we were looking at the the parables of the, the evil farmer and the great feast, and he seems to sort of be directing it at the religious leaders. But now it just it's just outright sort of unleashing upon them. Do we know any reason why he's changed tack in this? Because it's uh, before it was a bit like this is a metaphor, and if you get the metaphor, you know I'm talking about you. But now it's just outright. Look at these hypocrites. Well, my joke answer is to say that maybe he wasn't totally convinced he'd annoyed them enough to crucify him, <laughs> and he's like, "Well, I really need to die. That's part of the plan." So he's just. <laughs> One final nail into that particular coffin. What I think is probably more accurate is I think Jesus just has such a heart for the people that he's looking at Mm. and realizing that the Pharisees have set up this system that is unachievable. No one can reach God. No one can even know God, as you'll say in one of the woes, because of this very system the Pharisees have set up. So while not every single Pharisee or scribe or religious leader is a bad person, the system that they are part of and advocate for has really cut off God from the people. And Jesus is 
just going to slam it in his last mm. public teaching to anyone. Before this, the parables were mainly more towards those religious leaders, where now this is for all the crowds and everyone else. Yeah, yeah. First one literally says, he said to the crowds and his disciples. Mm. So this is big and public, but it's no longer in arguments or conflict with the religious leaders. It's yeah. just direct calling them out in front of everyone. There was a word in here when I was reading it that I hadn't seen before and wanted to know what it meant. I think you pronounce it phylactery. Phylacteries. Phylacteries. Is phylacteries. I think is the correct pronunciation. Um, I believe, Josh, you said your Bible didn't even have that word in it. No. When we were sort of looking, reading reading this before, I noticed that it might, so we're specifically looking at uh, in chapter 23, verse 5 here. It says, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes. So I believe the prayer boxes is is replacing the word phylacteries. Yeah, yeah. So Deuteronomy 11 verse 18 has God saying, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, most modern interpreters of Deuteronomy will say that that is symbolic language for never forget these words of mine. But the Jewish people, specifically the Pharisees, literally made little leather pouches with the laws of God in it, and they would literally tie it around their head when they prayed, or they would tie it around their arm on their way to prayer. And so it was like a physical outworking of this commandment to never forget God's laws. Mm. The thought is that perhaps they were also wearing these outside of the normal prayer times and therefore appearing to everyone else as far superior. Look at these amazing Jewish leaders who always have their phylacteries tightened to their forehead. I mean, that's what it's sort of like saying here is that sort of they're showing off their being or this 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 pompousness to it that uh, they are almost in a way wanting to show off their power that they have, uh, maybe in a, in a, in sort of abuse their power because they, they like the respect that it gains them. Um, yeah, they want to be seen mm. to be as religious and holy as possible, which is why in the same verse, Jesus criticizes them for the length of their tassels. And so Jewish garments would often have a tassel attached to each corner. And it seems like these particular Jewish people were wearing very, very long tassels off their clothes to show how religious they were. And what does rabbi mean that we see in this same area? Rabbi is the Jewish word for teacher. And so Jesus was often called a rabbi because he is a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, Most modern translations will literally just write the word teacher in rather than putting in the original rabbi. But Jesus here has a particular purpose for bringing up the word rabbi, I think. And that is? Well, he's, he's telling everyone that they should stop using the words teacher or rabbi, doctor, father. He's really calling them out for giving extra respect or honor to someone above what they're meant to have. Mm -hmm. And so the Pharisees clearly love to lord their power over people. They clearly loved to be called teacher, or we think that some particularly well-respected rabbis would also be called father by the general population. And Jesus here in this little beginning bit of 23 is saying, no, stop using those titles. Like I am the only true rabbi. I'm the only true teacher. God is the only true father. No one else deserves those titles, which potentially the modern church could think about a little bit, to be honest. <laughs> yes. We are certain denominations really do love their titles. I've got a friend who's part of a brethren church, and they're really big on following Jesus's exact commandings here of how everyone is equal and on a level playing field. And so they don't normally have pastors in the traditional sense. They think that all of God's people are there to lead the church and look after it and use their different roles and skill sets. Not everyone can do every role, Mm. but without applying the certain titles to people. I also had another question. Um, This is called the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Is there any significance with seven? We say the number seven a lot. Yeah, we see it in scripture a lot. Yeah, is there a reason? Um, I think the most likely option for why there's seven here is if we think back to the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he said, blessed are the dot, dot, dot. I think these woes correspond to those blessings. And so the beginning of Matthew, in Jesus' first sermon, we get how to live the life of a blessed disciple. And then the alternative picture is now presented here in 23s. Here are the woes of a false disciple. Now, the word woe is also probably important to define. And that is 
there's there's a scale of what woe could mean, right? On one side, it could be just a regretful lament, just like, I am sad about this. But on the other end of the scale, it's like calling down a curse and a judgment upon someone. So Jesus is using this word woe somewhere on that scale. Um, I suspect more towards the curse and judgment side because he is clearly quite angry with the Pharisees Mm -hmm. because of the way that they are leading the Jewish people into blindness Mm. is what he says. So in my Bible, I've got a study section down the bottom that actually lists the seven woes in a brief context. Mm. I might read them out. Yeah, definitely. So the first woe is the shut door. The second is the entrapped converts. The third is the binding oaths. The fourth is neglecting the weighty matters of the law. The fifth, clean outside, filthy inside. The sixth, whitewashed tombs. And the seventh, descendants of murderers of the prophets. What uh, woes stand out? We don't necessarily have to cover all of them. I mean, we could just work through them one to seven, but... I'm interested in the fifth one, the clean outside, filthy inside. Which is similar to what we heard in Jesus' sermons previously Mm. of um, talking about what, what comes out of you matters more than what your appearance is. Yeah, there was lots of debate amongst first century rabbis about how to clean the inside and outside of utensils and which bits could be used in certain um, ceremonial matters. And Jesus is saying, you guys are so concerned about these things and you are ignoring the more important internal moral issues. Mm. And that's similar to to the one then sort of after that of being the whitewashed tombs, mm. is you are beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurities. Mm. You know, to even further reiterate the point of like your inside intentions are not reflecting your outside. Mm. Tombs in that time period were whitewashed with literally white paint. wasn't Mm. exactly paint, but it was made to appear really bright and white so that Jewish people would be alerted to it and not touch it Mm. because they would be ceremonially unclean if they were to touch a tomb. And so they were really stark and obvious wherever you went so that you knew where a tomb was so you could not touch it. But then it had the the other side effect of they actually looked quite nice once you whitewashed them. Like they actually appeared to be quite lovely despite the fact that there's literally a dead body slowly decaying inside. Mm. And that's what Jesus says the Pharisees are is they're all dressed up and pretty but Inside, there's no spiritual life to speak of. So in the second woe, there's a word proselyte. Are you able to tell us what that means? To proselytize is a really old school way of evangelizing. Like it's just the old word for evangelism. So that's just referring to someone that the Pharisees have converted into a Pharisee. And Jesus says, you work really hard to make these converts, but what you end up doing is making him a child of hell. And so literally the word is, uh, literally the translation rather, is make him a child of hell more double than you are. You're creating a convert who is even more pharisaical than you are. And so every time they made a convert that they worked hard for, they're just creating someone who is wrong even more than they are because they're pursuing this method and this formula for trying to reach God. With the first word, the shut door, Mm. what does that kind of mean? The door often symbolizes a relationship with God or entry into God's kingdom. Mm. And so Jesus is saying that you guys don't actually have a way into God's kingdom. You think you do, but your attitude actually makes such a relationship, such an entry impossible. And you're teaching all these people this same way, which makes their entry into God's kingdom impossible. And that's what makes them hypocrites. Mm. Jesus doesn't seem to be using hypocrite in the sense of how you you say one thing and you do another, although he does use that in, use it in that sense in different times. But here he seems to be using it more in a way that is saying that your religious practice and teaching are actually inconsistent with the desire to please God. And so those two things don't align, and that's what makes you a hypocrite, no matter how sincere you are about actually wanting to live this way. What was the last word? The last word is descendants of murderers of the prophets. Because he's outright saying that they were to be held responsible for the murder of Abel and then the murder of Zechariah. These, you know, these are way, 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 way back in the past people. Significant murders and deaths, but he's now going, you are now responsible for these for these people. And they would have known who these people are. And that would have been a, like a hefty sort of accusation to throw around. Well, yeah, it's very clever what Jesus does here. So he, the first martyr slash murder in the Bible is Abel in Genesis. But then the very last one 
in the Hebrew Bible is Zechariah in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And in the way that the Hebrew Bible is ordered is that 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. So in our version of the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles comes like halfway through Mm. because we try to line up our Bibles semi-chronologically. But they actually place 2 Chronicles at the very, very end of their canon. And so you've got the first death and the last death of their Bible, of their Jewish scriptures. And Jesus is saying, you are responsible for these deaths and you want to kill me too. Because it's like the first and the last. It's like, well, if you're responsible for the first, you're responsible for the last, then you are responsible for everyone in between. Absolutely. And as well as now Jesus's death, as we'll see later. We're kind of jumping all over a bit, but there's something that I really liked with the fourth woe. Mm. They talk about the weightly matters of the law, Mm. swallowing a camel. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite the metaphor. Yeah, such a good illustration by Jesus. There's actually a um, a pun going on there. So in Aramaic, uh, the word for gnat is galma, and the word for camel is gamla, which is just swapping the L and the M around. And so they sound very, very similar. Mm-hmm. So Jesus was potentially even making a pun off this word. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the fourth word is an important one to point out because Jesus isn't saying that their tithing is unimportant or wrong. He's just saying that they're not doing the more important things, which is why he then quotes Micah 6, 8, which is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Mm. Jesus is saying, yeah, sure, keep tithing, but you're not doing the more important thing. So that's what the woe's done. Um, verses 37 and 39 then forms like a bridge mm. between these chapters. And so we've just looked at 23, which is Jesus really denouncing official Judaism. Like that's what he's doing there. But now as we head into his final sermon, he takes that theme and talks about the judgment that Israel and specifically the temple will face because of the failure of the officials of Judaism. And so we head right now into Jesus's last sermon, chapters 24 and 25. This feels big. (laughs) It is big. (laughs) It's like a big moment. Just quickly, the denouncing of uh, Judaism, when 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 he's grieving over Jerusalem, he's actually meaning he's grieving over and denouncing Judaism. Yeah, well, I think Jerusalem symbolizes the nation whose capital it is, which Mm. is Israel. So you could talk about Israel by just talking about Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is really lamenting over all of Israel, which has failed in many, many ways. And the most obvious way that he's just talked about in the woes is how they are failing spiritually. Mm. Can I tell you one of my favorite things about this sermon? Mm-hmm. As if we can, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not allowed no. to. Yeah. This is basically a fun fact by Lachlan, but by a different name. In Ezekiel 11 verse 23, the context of this Old Testament book is the people have been taken away from Jerusalem. They've been invaded by the Babylonians and they've been taken to Babylon. And Ezekiel sees this vision in Ezekiel 11 of God rising from the temple and then leaving towards Babylon, which is meant to encourage the Israelites back in those days that God is with them wherever they go. Even though their city is destroyed, their temple destroyed, God is following them. Mm. What Jesus does here is he leaves the temple for the last time. Jesus never goes back to the temple. He leaves the temple for the last time and he goes to the Mount of Olives. Now, when we go back to Ezekiel, this is what it says. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. Now, the mountain east of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. So Jesus does exactly what happens in Ezekiel's vision, which is leaves the temple, goes to the Mount of Olives, like Ezekiel sees God do, and from there he starts to teach. I just think there's something beautiful about that symmetry of Old Testament and New Testament of Jesus is acting what the glory of the Lord did in Ezekiel. Wow. It's all full circle, isn't it? So Jesus arrives on the Mount of Olives. We're saying that this is the context. From the Mount of Olives, you could actually see the temple. And given how much Jesus has just gone to town about the temple and Jerusalem, his disciples seem keen to lift it up a little bit and go, look, Jesus, at the temple. Look how amazing that building is. How could that ever end? Like, look how amazing this city is. And Jesus then jumps into explaining that the entire temple is going to be destroyed. This is Jesus's prediction. No one else at the time thought that was even a possibility. Jews thought that God's temple was going to stand until the end of time after they, this was the, the second temple. So they've already rebuilt it once, but there was the thought that this second temple would stand until the end of time. And Jesus is like, no, that whole thing is going to be ripped apart, which leads Jesus' disciples to ask him two questions, which is the prompt 
for this entire sermon we're about to read. So the first one is when these things will happen. Mm. The second one is around what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age. I think it's notable that the disciples ask both of these questions together. For them, the idea of the temple being destroyed is, in their minds, that is the end of the age. Like, they can't conceive of that being a separate moment. Like, something that grand and cataclysmic for their religious beliefs must be the end of the age in their mind. And so that's why they ask these two questions. Now, when we come to this sermon, particularly chapter 24, there's often a lot of confusion. Because Jesus has just been asked two questions. In the disciples' mind, it's the one question, but it is two distinct questions. The first question is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? We know that the answer is in AD 70, which is only a few decades on from right now, from when we're reading this text. So we know AD 70, the temple is going to be destroyed. And then the second question is, when will be your coming? When will you return in glory? They assume it'll be similar time to the temple being destroyed. But then Jesus goes on to say, no one knows the day or hour of my return, which as we Christians in the 21st century are well aware of, we're still waiting for that second (laughs) bit. And so I think it's important to divide up this passage into two sections. So here's my proposed division. Verses 1 to 35 of chapter 24 answers the first question of when will the temple be destroyed? That is Jesus answering that question. And then in verses 36 to 51, he answers the question of, When will be your second coming? And I think most of the confusion around this sermon of Jesus, because as we're hopefully about to see as we dive into it, lots of confusing stuff happening. Most of the confusion comes from not properly separating those two questions and answers apart. But that's my division, 1 to 35, Why? when is the temple destroyed? And then 36 to 51, when will you return? Reading through it, it's saying like, you know, nations will go against nations and wars wars will spark. We already, if we look at our own history ourselves, we already see nations that are in conflict against nations. These predictions have already, in terms of this first part about the what you're proposing in terms of the, the temple, these things are already happening. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, for us, these things have already happened. Um, and I think, unfortunately will continue to to happen. It's interesting that you would point to that one first. Here's why it's interesting. Because mm-hmm. it says, you, verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Mm. And I think what Jesus is actually saying is, wars and rumors of wars is not a sign that the temple's about to be destroyed. Because mm. those things have always happened and will always happen. So when you hear of wars, don't assume that is a sign for the end. Like, don't get panicked yet. The end is still going to come later mm. because this is actually not a sign. Or when famine or pandemics or great um, illnesses that get spread around, that is also not a sign for the end. Because as as we've seen in, in wars, they pop up from time to time. They've happened all throughout human history. Mm. And I dare say there will be several more. Anyway, so we talked about how wars are not actually necessarily a sign that the temple's about to be destroyed. What is a sign that the temple's about to be destroyed? Verse 15 says the end will come when you see the abomination of desolation. What does that mean? <laughs> Seems very Bit ominous. of a mouthful. It's, it is very ominous, and that is exactly the most obvious sign that the temple's about to be destroyed. So Daniel chapter 9 uses this exact same language and talks about this abomination that causes desolation. And most Jewish people thought that this had already been fulfilled, that this prophecy of Daniel had already been fulfilled. And that was when the Seleucid king invaded Jerusalem in 167 BC and set up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. Hmm. They thought that this was an utter abomination. So an abomination is just an Old Testament way of saying something that is an affront to God. And they thought that this moment by the Seleucid king was just the actual worst. And like they're right in terms of Jewish culture and Jewish beliefs, this was the actual worst. What Jesus seems to be suggesting here is either that that fulfillment by the Seleucid king king wasn't the fulfillment they're waiting for for Daniel 9, or that they're waiting for a second one to happen. Mm. I lean towards the second one of, I think the Seleucid king fulfills exceptionally well what Daniel prophesies. 
And so Jesus is saying, we're looking for another one of these type of moments. Once this happened to the temple, will then fall. Yes, that is yeah. exactly what Jesus is saying, is once you see this abomination, that is when you know the temple will be destroyed. Mm. And he's and, you know, goes into fleeing into the hills and, and leaving things and going off, all sort of <laughs> gets covered in that section. On that topic, as we know historically, everything Jesus is predicting here did take place in AD 70 when the Roman army under Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But we read in this early church historian, a guy by the name of Eusebius, and he says that because of what Jesus says in this sermon, the Christians fled Jerusalem before its destruction. Hmm. And so there is something amazing about the fact that Christianity, which began in Jerusalem Mm. and was centered on Jerusalem for many, many years, survives the destruction of Jerusalem because of Jesus's warnings here. So we could almost argue that if Jesus didn't give this warning, then Christianity may have been killed off then. Yeah. I mean, by this time period, Christianity had spread across the Roman Empire, but the church in Jerusalem was the starting point and the biggest Mm. community of Christians. And yet it seems that en masse, they survived the destruction of Jerusalem because they fled to the hills like Jesus tells them to. But as for what this abomination is, any thoughts? Well, it's interesting because my one says, because I've got a slightly different translation, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. So I mean, just another way to phrase it, really. Mm. That seems to be implying it's a, like it's a literal object that's going to be put in there that that causes this. I'm not sure other than that it's it's something similar to what maybe happened before of another false idol getting placed in. And I would argue that would be probably the thing that would cause such desecration to it. Because really to desecrate a place would be to strip out or to desecrate the temple would be to strip out God from it. And so you would need to strip God out and then replace it with something else. I want to suggest that in Luke 21, which is sort of the Luke version of this sermon, he seems to indicate that the Roman army entering Jerusalem with their idolatrous standards. So they like they would have their flag as they marched in with their legions into Jerusalem. And on that flag was, or their banner, it's probably a better word for it. Mm. On that banner was represented the paganism of the Roman Empire. And as the Roman army marches it towards Jerusalem with this idolatrous banner held high, Luke 21 seems to suggest that this is this abomination, this moment where the Jewish people and their God see something that is an affront to the holy God as they enter Jerusalem with this standard and banner. Because the Romans at this point in time, they had their Roman gods. Mm -hmm. The whole pantheon of them. The idea that they're bringing their Roman gods in was what Luke was referring to. The Romans also had the cult of the emperor set up in most provinces, which is they would worship the Roman emperor as if he was a god. Uh, Talking about the brackets at the end of 15, so at the end of the verse... It says standing in the holy place and in brackets it says let the reader understand. Brackets seem to be a bit out of place almost for the Bible. Like it's, it's addressing the reader itself and was that by the original author, the translator? So my NIV does not have brackets there. Mm. It has dash, let the reader understand, dash. I think we're just meant to read this as something Jesus said. He said, let the reader understand. He's just quoted an Old Testament prophecy from Daniel, and he's saying you need to interpret and understand this prophecy because that is the sign of the temple being destroyed. So it's like, stop, read this, pay attention to it, and let there no be confusion about what the sign was. So we've identified that Jesus has given us some pretty accurate signs of when the temple is going to be destroyed. He then, verses 29 to 31, is just like a collage of Old Testament prophecies and quotes and language that I think is worth unpacking. Because I know for me, when I read this sermon of Jesus, it is 29 to 31 that makes almost no sense to me. And so I'll throw it to the table first. As you read those few verses, what's going on? Where else in the Bible do you think of? The sun, moon, stars, and powers, I think of um, Psalms and Proverbs and like quite poetic Mm. language and like symbolism almost. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not sure if here it's actually like literally what it is or if they're actually signs. Many Christians across history have waited for a literal sun darkening, moon destruction star being wiped out. Just on that topic, I think that interpretation is wrong by the people who think they're waiting for a literal thing. So we see Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34. These exact descriptions, almost word for word, are given for the fall of Babylon 
and for the fall of Edom, two of these mm. pagan nations, God uses the exact same phrase. And so basically all it says is that there will be a cataclysmic destruction of these nations. And so I think it is very appropriate to apply that to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Like if the fall of Babylon in God's mind is like the stars being darkened, then how much more can we say it about the destruction of his capital city? And so I think it's wrong to wait for a physical, tangible destruction of heavenly bodies in preparation for the temple being destroyed. Instead, this is a very symbolic way of saying they are going to be destroyed and there is a great shift that is coming with that. Then in verse 30, um, we get a few more allusions, specifically to Daniel chapter 7, which talks about the coming of the Son of Man. Now, a lot of people often read verse 30 and assume that this is the point Jesus swaps over to talking about his second coming, but that doesn't make sense quite yet because he will say in a few verses after verse 30 that all this will happen before the generation he's talking to has passed away. And we know that the temple was destroyed before that generation passed away, but his second coming hasn't happened since that generation passed Mm. away. And so he must still be talking now about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so what we see in Daniel 7 is that the Son of Man comes before God and what happens when he comes before God is there is a like a mighty reversal of fortunes on a national level. Like the political standing of the world is changed when the Son of Man comes before his Father in heaven. And so I think, again, Jesus is still talking about the destruction of the temple and saying that it's going to be like in Daniel 7 when the Son of Man comes before God, everything changes. And finally, verse 31 talks about angels going to and fro and gathering the elect. I think it's important here to think about angels could just be messengers going out from the world from Jerusalem to preach the gospel. I think that is actually a very fair way of interpreting that passage. But it could refer to supernatural powers that lies behind the preaching of the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And so I don't, again, don't think verse 31 is talking about final judgment, but is talking about that there will be a worldwide growth of the church. We are now going to be in a new age. Israel is no longer that special place. Instead, it's going to be destroyed. Just sounds so scary, like some of the language used and like if you imagine it, what it would be like. (laughs) It just sounds terrifying. Yeah. Like really terrifying. And so like what you find later of that apocalyptic um, sort of language and writing. Mm. I mean, this is exactly Jesus using apocalyptic language and writing. Mm. Like this is almost one of the prime biblical examples of. So now I think it's fair to move to verse 36 where Jesus changes subjects. Like he's no longer talking about the destruction of the temple. In verse 34, he says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. So that's talking about the destruction of the temple. Then we come to verse 36 and he says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. And so we've clearly changed to a different topic than that topic of which this generation will survive and see. Because mm. Jesus himself doesn't even know when his return will take place. It must be a new topic now. And this is the point we now t- start talking about the signs of his return. If the son and the father are meant to be the same, though, how does the son not know? Such a fantastic question. This is something that really took me a long time to get my head around, like the father, the son and the Holy Spirit and like how it all works together. So mm. I have the same question like how. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Is it well, a trick question? <laughs> weren't, weren't we met yeah, weren't we taught that they were all the same and yeah. yeah. They're same but different. The doctor of the Trinity uses very precise language when we talk about it. What we need to know about Jesus, and this has been affirmed in all of the early Christian creeds, um, especially the Chalcedonian Creed, which is that Jesus has two natures. He is one being with two natures. He has Mm. his divine nature and he has his human nature. The best way of describing it is actually in that Chalcedonian Creed, which is an early Christian creed, which is that he is truly God and truly man. Now, there's a whole bunch of things about Jesus that we read in the Gospels that cannot be true of his God nature. Here's a few examples. He grew up and became strong in Luke 2. He increased in stature, Luke 2. He was 30 years old, Luke 3. (laughs) He became weary in John 4. He was thirsty in John 19. He was hungry in Matthew 4. 
he died. We're going to read about that next week. Like these are all things that cannot be true of his divine, Mm. heavenly, godly nature, but are absolutely 100% true of his human nature. So what I think we see here in Jesus is someone who, on account of his human nature, does not know when he will return. Now, because he also has a godly nature, I think he can recall that information the moment he needs it. But for whatever reason, he's chosen not to in this moment access the information that he totally has as God. But on account of his earthly human nature, he does not know when he will return yet. It's almost in a way he's like humbling himself to to say that even even he won't know. That is Philippians 2 to a T, where it mm. says that Jesus humbled himself to become a man. When reading through this, verse 42 stood up, um, stood out to me. Stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I think it was just like a good reminder to not waver in your faith and just like stay awake, stay present, even when you don't know. And also just to stay strong in your faith, even when you don't know what is happening, what's coming, what's going on. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. This second bit of the sermon, this Jesus answering the question of when he will return, he says, I don't know when I'm coming back. And it's not important about when I'm coming Mm -hmm. back because it'll be at a time when it's least expected. So live a life from right now, a life that glorifies God and a life that is ready at any point for me to come back. Mm. Yeah. Must be ready also. I think it's a good like self-check-in reminder too. If you were to meet God tomorrow, would you be proud of where you're at and what Mm. you're doing? Mm. Like be ready at all times. That's Jesus' exact message. It's stop worrying about when I'm coming back and live a life worthy of me coming back, Mm. which one of my other pet peeves is seeing any Christian leader ever try to claim they know when Jesus is coming back. Mm. Jesus just said he doesn't know. So stop claiming you know more than Jesus <laughs> and live a life worthy of it. Like any good preacher, he realized he's just spoken content for far too long. He's just raved on in many, many verses about the destruction of the temple and his second coming. And he now needs to litter in a few stories to re-engage the audience, which is exactly what we see here is a few parables to get us engaged with exactly what he's been teaching. I just feel like this parable is in such a random spot. Okay. I don't know The first one? The first parable. of the ten virgins? Yeah. Why why is that? I just feel like it's just a very random time to talk about this. Like, I feel like it should have been earlier. Do you say, though, this links... To what he was saying before about being ready? It could, yes, now that you mention it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think this parable is meant to illustrate exactly what Jesus has just been teaching. So I agree it changes tracks dramatically because yeah. suddenly we're talking about like a village wedding. Yeah. <laughs> but it it is teaching a very specific point through this parable. It sounds like you've got a good handle on what it's teaching, John. What is it teaching? <laughs> if we sort of just look at the, look at the parable and my one's, my one's a bit nicer than saying, nicer than saying virgins. My one's a bit more PG in saying like the bridesmaids <laughs> <laughs> and them being ready for the bridegroom or the groom and that when the groom arrives, they need to be ready to leave. So half of them have prepared and have enough oil and the other half do not. And so they seek when, when they realize they do not have enough oil, they then, then try and get more oil, but realize they can't. So they go out and so they are unprepared from about this and so when they come back they've missed out on the groom that's come and so i would say that the groom in this instance is god and is jesus and that we are preparing ourselves for when jesus comes back and not missing out when jesus comes we don't want to be unprepared and unready for him at the door and then come to the uh, you know we don't want to come to the door and it's locked behind um, behind him and we're not allowed to go in that's my understanding i think you're bang on and my my version says god called himself israel's husband like my little study bit down the bottom i think that's so funny yeah, he definitely does which is why it's interesting that it is almost definitely jesus in the place of the groom in this story because mm. it's again Jesus placing himself in positions that is normally held by God in the Old Testament. Mm. He's done it throughout Matthew and that has raised many eyebrows of many religious people as Jesus keeps putting himself into the position of God from various Old Testament mm. passages and stories. And we're getting these um, images of marriage and um, like a groom and a, and a bride because it's that partnership you have between one and another, the partnership that we have with Jesus. And I think this parable is helpful for informing us that we need to be ready, but I think it doesn't help us know what we're meant to do in the meantime, mm. which 
is exactly what the next parable is about. So right at the start of this parable, it talks about the five talents. Mm. Do you know what the five talents are? Yeah. So a talent is actually just a unit of money. So don't get confused thinking of like natural talents or skills or abilities. I think that is a way that this passage has often been read, but that's purely just a confusion of the English language. But a talent is quite a bit of money. It's probably about 20 years wages is a talent. My translation actually says bags of gold, which is also sufficiently vague, but conveys the same idea of it's a large sum of money being given to each of the servants here. Yeah, because I was kind of going through trying to find like five talents <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. couldn't find them. Are they good at admin? <laughs> yeah. Good at- <laughs> he was really good at backflipping. Yeah. <laughs> what a natural talent. Which is then, which is then strange because if yours says bags of gold, why is mine bags of silver? Why? <laughs> yeah, that's super odd. Yeah, it's just like they're almost just the same thing. Why? Ch- why? Why change it? Very odd, but okay. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just move on. But what do we think the money could represent, though? It's probably important to figure out. I'm not really sure. So I would say that looking looking through this parable, if we look through from start start to end, we have three servants here, and two of them take their bags of silver, go away and double or triple their money. So they make more money off the the money that they've entrusted. And then one sort of buries it, buries it away. Then looking at sort of what happens when the master returns and the master being so pleased that the, the two servants that have uh, increased their wealth from the money that they were given and then the, the one servant that was so afraid and thought they were doing the right thing was actually in the master's eyes the wrong thing. I would say, well, the money represents Christians and us trying to double the amount of Christians in the world, or us trying to spread the the good news and not just keeping this good news to ourselves. It's interesting because I, when I read this parable, would have assumed that the servants represent humans rather than the gold or the silver, as your translation says, mm. representing humans. Because I think we are meant to leave this parable thinking, ah, I can either be the first two servants or I can be the third servant who Mm. doesn't do anything. I agree with you. I think we as followers already are the servants, but we are to double our, what I'm more thinking is doubling our wealth as in doubling our own spread of Christianity. Because I think in this parable, the third servant isn't even a Christian. Like he's called you wicked, lazy servant. Like because he hasn't used what is entrusted to him, he is cast from the kingdom. And yet those who have used what is given to them are given a reward. And that reward is actually greater responsibility. So there's something about doing well with what God gives you that then entitles you to greater responsibility later. It was a bit of a hard question because I don't think we can perfectly know exactly what the monies represent. Part of me thinks it could be as simple as It is the opportunities and privileges that come with the kingdom of heaven. Like we're given a whole bunch of opportunities and privileges by entering into God's kingdom and we can use them for him. Maybe it is natural talents that we use for God's glory here on earth. I don't know if the specifics is the important bit here, Mm. even though I'm the one who asked this question. (laughs) But I think what is important is that we are meant to be working in preparation for the master's return. We are meant to be using every resource the master has entrusted us with for him in expectation of his return. So you can almost say the bag of gold is everything we have in life. Everything we have, you should be working hard and using that for your master, which is God. And not just hiding it away because you're afraid to use <laughs> to use it. I kind of lean towards agreeing with Josh's idea a bit more. <laughs> it just makes sense. The key point regardless is that we need to be working and utilizing the time between Jesus's first and second coming. Yeah. Like that is clearly the point of this parable Mm. is uh, working hard with what God has given us in this intervening period. Yeah, definitely. So we're up to the, what is described in my version, the final judgment. Yeah. There's um, a lot of scholars who think that even though Jesus has just given two parables and this seems to be a third parable, A lot of people think, no, this doesn't have the elements of a parable. This is actually just a description of what is going on Mm. at the final judgment. And it's interesting. Lamb, I think we we understand quite, uh, and sheep, we understand quite easily. Goat, however, on the other hand, I think as history has gone through, goat has started off with this meaning and then has sort of 
changed, but then still retains a bit of its old meaning. So go in this instance, meaning more towards the devil mm. and the unfaithful. Then, yep. the unfaithful and then can be seen sort of more like horror genre uh, images of goats and, and all that. So that's still prevalent today. However, calling someone the goat is actually a positive thing and is actually a really good thing. So, <laughs> Yeah, in our culture, right. In our, when, in our culture. But it's, but it's goat stands for greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. <laughs> but if you had no context of what a goat meant then, you'd be wondering why, why are they calling goat if you only knew that goat meant great. Yeah, true, in our context. What's also important is that in first century Palestine, where this is taking place, goats and sheep look super similar. If you've got in your mind the picture of the white, fluffy European sheep, stop. That is literally not what Jesus is talking about. This is this practice of separating sheep and goats was actually something a Palestinian shepherd would do often because from a very cursory glance, they are very hard to distinguish. You've actually got to get amongst them to divide them up. And so you would have mixed flocks like this in Palestine, but the sheep were the more valuable thing economically. And with that in mind, that then makes, there's there's even more weight because again, as you were saying, this image of a white fluffy sheep running through the fields is what I what I have, have in mind. So you're like, oh, it's easier to divide them up. But if it was so difficult to divide them up, then that gives us more weight to going, oh, yeah, those in amongst us might look like sheep and goats and we might not actually know who they are until it is divided. Yeah, which is way back to chapter 13 when we looked at the parables of Jesus and we saw the parable of the wheat and the weeds, mm. which was that they all exist on earth slash in that field together. And it's not until the final judgment, which we're literally reading about here at the very end of 25, that they are finally divided. And I like the consistency of the king placing the sheep to his right-hand side and the, and the right-hand side being the second most important seat in the kingdom compared to the left-hand side <laughs> being the third being the third most. But I like the consistencies here of it of continuing the right hand of the king. And what we see here in this judgment moment breaks a few of the Jewish expectations of judgment day. So first it is Jesus or the son of man who is judging the nations here. And yet the expectation was that God would judge, mm. which is what we see in like the prophet Joel chapter three, for instance, we see that it is God as the judge. So here it is Jesus stepping into that spot. The Jewish expectation is that only the other nations are judged not themselves. And yet what we see here is everyone, including the Jews, are lined up before the Father and separated between sheep and goats. And then finally, they expected judgment to be based upon people's love for God or their attitude towards the nation of Israel itself. But here, people are divided up on how they treat Jesus's followers. One translation I read said, how they treat Jesus's little brothers, which I thought was a really nice, personal way of phrasing it. Which leads me to my question. Judgment here seems to be based on good works. Is that what we take away from this? Is this more than linking it to the part where it's like, when did you ever be such and such? Is that what we're saying here? Like when when Oh did yeah, we when ever... I ask the question of is this based on good works, the dividing feature amongst them is how they acted, mm. which has not been the Christian message. No. Hmm. I don't believe it's necessarily good deeds but maybe how but it's how you're treating the sheep i think we are meant to see a very strong link between this passage we've just read and jesus's second sermon in chapter 10 so the list of hardships that he has just thanked or judged people for not doing is the exact same things that he promises to his followers in chapter 10 that they will experience now interestingly enough it's also the exact same Christian experience that Paul has when he lists out his Christian experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's like, I went through all of these things. I was in prison. I was hungry. I was thirsty. Something Jesus says at the very end of his sermon in chapter 10 is this, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Mm. And so what I think we're actually meant to read in this final judgment passage is all of these Christians, all of these sheep who accepted and cared for and loved other Christians, mm. that is meant to be taken as a sign that they accepted Jesus. So the d dividing factor is still whether your faith is placed in Jesus, whether you've entered his kingdom via him because he is the only gate into his kingdom. That is still the dividing line. But the way he explains it is, did you accept those who are of me? Because that is the sign that you accepted me. 
Does that make sense? Yes, it's the no matter what state he was in, you accepted him. So you accept Jesus by accepting his followers. Mm. Jesus says also in chapter 10 that you'll be rewarded if you give the smallest or least significant of my followers a glass of water. I remember discussing that many, many weeks ago now. And so the dividing line is still faith in Jesus. Mm. And the outworking of that faith in Jesus is you have accepted those that he has accepted. And then we end the final sermon of Jesus on this terrifying note. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So I guess we do actually end on a high note, (laughs) which is there is that eternal divide that will happen. The sheep and the goats is an eternal decision. Judgment day is coming. We don't know when, but it is coming. I was going to suggest as we come to our final reflection section that we probably all have that same reflection, which is that Mm. Jesus is coming back, live in preparation for that. Mm -hmm. Like this is Jesus' final sermon and that is what we've just learned from Jesus' final sermon is live in expectation of Jesus' return. It could be at any minute. It could be before you finish this podcast or it could be in another 2,000 years. We just don't know, but we need to live every moment of our life in preparation Mm. and expectation of that. Use those talents and gifts that God's given you and to use them tenfold because you don't know when, like you're saying, you don't know when Jesus is coming back, so live in preparation. Stay awake and be ready. Mm. As we're sort of wrapping up this episode and as we're getting to the end of of Matthew and as we've sort of gone through it, I'm sure that there's been lots of questions that have come up and our final episode for our series looking at Matthew will be a Q&A episode. And I've said, said this last episode and I'll say it again. If you've got any questions, there are no dumb questions, send them in because we're going to attempt to try and answer all, all the questions that you may have in that Q&A uh, episode. So we need your questions in beforehand so that we can then record that episode. As always, don't forget to follow us on all our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and the like. And if you're watching and you want to listen to this, then you can listen to it wherever you consume podcasts. Or if you're a listener and you want to see all our beautiful faces, then you can hop onto YouTube and you can see us there. Don't forget to like any of our content, subscribe to it and leave us a review because it really does help help us. And we love to know your feedback on what you guys think and maybe what we might need to be able to improve. But it also helps us get discovered in the algorithm. On Discovery, share it with a friend. Share it with someone that needs to, needs to hear this because we'd love the podcast to spread to as many people as possible because we want the Bible and its message to spread to as many people as possible. Lockie, can I get you to pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that we have dived into it today um, and understood you better because of it. I pray for us and I pray for all of our listeners that we may live in a way that is in expectation of your return. And so we look forward to that moment um, and we pray that we may live in a way that glorifies you when you come. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Thank you, Lockie and Morgan. And we'll see everyone next week. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production.